One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. This week's episode is a bit special, partly because Trisha Goddard joins the interviewing panel. Yes, Trisha, living legend that she is. Emma Sexton is away, so Trisha stepped in to help us interview Jason Livingston, athlete and now author. He talks about his childhood, growing up with abuse, and how it influenced his career. Just a warning for some of you, some of this might be triggering. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Uh, we are very excited to have in the studio with us kind of an Olympic legend who. I think has just done an incredibly brave thing. Jason Livingston, welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Hello, thanks for having me. So people know you probably as sprinter, 200-metre runner, Barcelona Olympics, coming back from injury to set a personal best, and now you've written a new book that is very different. It's not the traditional sporting memoir. It's not. No, it's about your childhood. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's funny because my father years ago said to me that I should write a book. And I think because of the whole Barcelona incident, um, I think everyone was thinking, write a book about that because it was such a, a, a massive story. And should we, should we just remind people? Do you mind reminding people? No, not at all, not at all. It's, 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 it's in black and white. So yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. I made the Olympic team in 92 for the 100 metres. I was going into the Olympics. I was like the third fastest in Europe and was on for a medal. And um, failed the drugs test in June. And literally the first day I got into the Olympic Village, it was announced. I got a, a letter and was literally flown home the next day. And it all went pear-shaped from there, banned yeah. for four years from the sport. Um, yeah, so that was that mm. was that incident, yeah. So everybody thought that the book would be about that? Yeah, I think everyone thought the book was would be about that. And I think everyone thought the book would be about revelations and tell us the story about who do you know who's taking drugs and things like that. But... My whole life was is a lot more than that. And um, I, I held off on writing the book because I did want to just write about Barcelona and about, about, about my career. There were so many other things. And because I'd battled for so many years um, because of my childhood, yeah. um, I got to the point where I was actually ready to write the story. So your childhood, when we think of kind of, I think top-level athletes. We obviously often think of them having a childhood where you know they're ferried around to all the various sports. They've got mm. obsessively supportive parents. You know, they're kind of costed and 
child prodigy-esque. Was that how it was for you? Not at all. Um, I grew up in a, in, a, in a wonderful West Indian home. I was raised by my, raised by my grandparents. But when I was um, eight years old, my biological mother married uh, someone and I basically went to live with them. And that was a whole new experience for me because it was not like it was a smooth transition or this is what's going to happen or this is the guy I'm going to marry. It was literally just like an overnight thing. And literally my life went downhill from there and literally physical abuse started from there. So it was a bit of a nightmare from the from the age of eight, really. And when, when you say it was literally overnight, so one night you were with your... Well, literally, one day you were with your grandparents. Can you remember that first... I mean, I'm just thinking for an eight-year-old, this is home, you've got all your things around you, this is my room, and then the next day you're... What? In your... Do you have a room of your own? Or did you have... Yeah, when I moved, I had a room of my own, but it was funny because when I'm, when I'm writing about this, it was all, it was all a bit of a blur because... I don't remember being introduced to this to this guy. The first memory I have of him and a picture was at their engagement party. And I don't remember the, the, the wedding. I don't remember attending the wedding. I just remember us moving into this flat in Walthamstow because everything was a bit of a blur and nothing was ever really explained to me. It was just like, this was, this was, this happened and this, you had to get on with it. And um, literally, I just had to really quickly adjust to life, quickly, um, and the transition was quite horrible for me because I grew up in a house with uncles and aunties who were literally like my brothers and sisters and my, my grandma, my grandfather. So to have that taken away literally within a few days was was pretty traumatic for me mentally. And was it a complete disconnect from your grandparents and the sort of that, that kinship community to being with your, your mother and her, her new husband? No, I, I wasn't disconnected. Um, I used to still see them, but literally when I when I first moved in with my biological mother, my stepfather, it was for about a good few months. It was them and only them mm. until I got settled. And but for me, the transition um, settling in mentally was very very difficult because nothing was explained to me. I didn't want to go and live with them, mm. and so but I had no choice. So it was very very difficult. Were you at the same school? Or did everything change? Everything, everything changed. changed. Everything changed. Everything changed. So I grew up in, in, in Thornton Heath in Surrey and we literally moved to Walthamstow. So it was new family, new school, wow. this stranger who I didn't know. So everything literally changed overnight and I had to adjust. So uh, that was difficult. So on top of, you know, when abuse happened, mm. um, <laughs> my whole world just turned into a nightmare, really. And did that abuse start from the get-go? Was there a sort of... Do you remember there being an incident or something that triggered it? I or? had about two weeks grace period. Mm. Um, I remember the first incident I had was having dinner around the table and I remember spilling a, a glass of milk and literally being shouted at um, like I've never been shouted at before. And I, I knew something was off, but the physical abuse hadn't started. So I, I thought, OK, that was a little bit of discipline. But the first incident happened, and I, I, I document this in the book, where um, he used to slap me quite a lot just walk past me and slap me and shout at me and things like that so that was a lot to to, to come to terms but what the first real significant incident was I, I remember being in a house with him alone and not only physical abuse but it was mental abuse and he said mm. to me um go over to the clock and tell me what the time is and I remember it was difficult for me because I'm not sure if I could tell the time at that at that time at that age but I remember it was difficult because the clock was in Roman numerals mm. so it was like I was literally looking at Russian and I'm standing there thinking I don't know what the time is 
And I remember this guy standing behind me and telling me, you better tell me what the time is. And I'm sitting there petrified. I remember him standing behind me and I heard him taken off his belt and I knew what was going to happen. And as a young child, I'm petrified, thinking yeah. I don't know what the time is. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Um, it was a complete nightmare. And literally, I got out of that situation um, because I, I, I managed to tell the time. But from there, it was a, a whole catalogue of, of incidents where I was just physically abused. And it was just, um, it just changed me as a person. It, can, can I ask you, sorry, to, when you were being hit or beaten, where did you go to in your head? What did you do? Um, I literally went to places that I didn't know existed. I literally uh, started, to, started to withdraw as a child. Um, I was a really outgoing, out, you know, fun-loving child and I literally became withdrawn because I'm sitting there thinking I'm not used to this I don't know what is going on you didn't know when it was going to come next or what the rules were no you I was I, I, well yeah this is a little bit triggering for me no it's, it's, it's difficult because I didn't know what was going to happen next I over over time I learned to to read him and learn the trigger points and learn the, the things that were you know what incidents that were going to happen next but um it was difficult because you didn't know what was going to happen next and when um so I was always walking on eggshells and things were always difficult because it was just like when's this going to happen next mm -hmm. so that was as much as mental torture for me as it was physical and where was your you refer to her as your biological mother where was your biological mother at this point um she was there but um, witnessing this well not until later on but a lot of this happened initially when she was away um, because she used to work, I think, at the, if my memory serves me correctly, she used to work at a bank, so late shifts were, were classic beating times for me. Um, and she used to go away a lot of weekends. So it was literally, he had me at his mercy, and I was told that if you told anyone... I this was going to say, did you tell your grandmother, right? No, because, because out of fear, because I was told that, you know, if anyone, if you told anyone this was what was going to happen. And he told me in advance what was going to happen. So the mental fear mm. of thinking that if I tell anyone I'm dead, I couldn't do it. So um, because it was a whole new experience, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I didn't think I could tell anyone. I was scared to tell anyone because I thought if I told anyone and they addressed it, but okay. I still had to go back there... It would get worse. It would get worse. But was how long did that go on for? Because as you, I'm guessing, grew bigger and stronger, did mm. you ever think to fight back or to pretend you uh, I mean, fall to the floor and pretend you, he'd, he'd done more to you than he, you know, that he knocked you unconscious? And uh, Yeah, I mean, in, in, this went on from, from about the ages of eight to about I was 15. Wow. And mm. I started to fight back when I was about 14, 15. I, it got to a point where um, I'd had enough. And because I changed so much as a person, I was angry, mm. I was bitter, I started to become... I, I, I'd become a totally different person. And it got to about 14, and especially when I was 15, it, we had an incident where I'd already made up in my mind that I'd had enough, and I made up in my mind that if this happened again, I made up in my mind that I was going to kill him. And I'd planned it out in my head, and I knew exactly what I was going to do, when I was going to do it, how I was going to do it. And after I'd killed him, I'd go to the police because I'd had enough. Because if I didn't, um, I don't know what would have happened. So what, what actually did happen at that time? Um, well, I knew at that time um, 
the, a lot of the beatings used to be at quite at, at night. Used to wake me up out of my sleep. Oh, um, oh my I used to call them surprise attacks. And I mm. said to myself, if he came into my room again, um, I was going to kill him. So what I did, I went to my kitchen, got a kitchen knife, and hid it under my pillow. And I said, okay, if he comes into my room again, that is it. I've had enough. I can't take anymore. Um, because he'd literally physically and mentally broken me by this time. He came into my room about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. We fought. Um, we fought. The whole room was upside down. And I managed to, to get under the pillow, grab the knife, and managed to get on top of him. And as I was kneeling over him, I literally was about to plunge the knife into his chest. And something said to me, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? No, this is my chance for revenge. This is it. This is all the years of pent-up mm. anger and this is what I wanted. Mm. This is revenge. And something said to me, no. And um, it, was the, it was probably one of the worst days of my life, but one of the best days of my life because if I'd killed him, um, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. Um, but not doing it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. But with, uh, with, did that send a message to him that suddenly he had someone who who could fight back to that degree or did it not change anything no it did it did because he knew then that he physically he had no more power over me because mm. now if he if he tried to tackle me again he knew i was going to fight back um so that that totally changed the whole dynamic of that what he became nicer no no, no, he never became nicer, but um, that was the last major incident that me and him had. You're listening to Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio, where we're talking to Jason Livingston. Um, he's talking about his new book, Born Running, which is all about his relationship with his parents and step-parents growing up. Jason, how did this relationship with your stepfather and I guess how did it impact on your relationship with your mother? Um... <laughs> It's funny because I never really had a relationship with my mother mm. and it sounds strange because I went to live with her, but um, I called my grandmother mummy mm. and my grandfather daddy because that's the way I saw them. Um, my mum, my biological mother at the time, well, she was out working, doing whatever she was doing. And even when I went to go and live with them at the age of eight, we still never really bonded. Um, but it went before that because mm. of the way I was conceived, um, her relationship with my biological father... And plus, it was, I was never really wanted. I was rejected literally from birth. So this was a case of, I think, because she got married, it was, okay, let's put together this makeshift family. But she never really wanted me. And the bond of mother and son, which is, as you know, sometimes a, a wonderful, magical bond, wasn't there. So from the get-go, I, I never received something that I should have got from birth. Mm. So we never really had a great relationship. And did she have other children with him? No, she never. Um, I know there were two or three incidents where she got pregnant and miscarried. And um, if I'm honest, I'm thankful yeah. that she didn't because I, there's no way I would have allowed any of my siblings to go through mm. what... What, 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 I, what I went through. So I'm thankful that she never... And was he abusive to her as well? No, because uh, she probably would have killed him <laughs> because she had a vile temper. Mm. And it was a case where... it's. I think for me, when I look back, it's typical coward's behaviour because um, he did it to me, but there's no way on earth he would have mm. done it to her because yeah. she would have she would have dealt with him. Um, and, and it must have been a, as well, you might have been a reminder that you were of a life before him. 
mm. you know, her life before him, that you, you know, it, uh, maybe you looked more like whoever him was or what have you. And they, there's a whole pathological society, uh, thing, thinking behind that. But for you, sport, how did... Was sport and running, was that an escape? What what was that to you then? Um, it was a massive escape because when I was at school, I was I, I played all sports. I was good at football, cricket, um, running. But when I got to about the age of 14, 15, and I moved back with my grandparents because literally after uh, one incident with my biological mother, um, I'd had enough. So I left and went back to my grandparents in Croydon. And because my uncle and auntie were running for Croydon Harriers... Um, that's how I got into ah. athletics um, because football was my first love. And living in East London, I had a few trials for a few clubs and I yeah. was banned from playing football by my stepfather, so that never really took off. So athletics was just a wonderful escape and just so discovered that I had a bit of talent. I'm going to keep talking about this through to the next break. Yeah, we're going to. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Because, just checking. We're, we're going to keep going because yeah, yeah. we only got to 15 and... There's, I don't want to skip over anything, but going from 15 to who you are now and sharing this story takes so much work. And we haven't even got on to your sporting career yet. So yeah, from 15, and if you, you were drawing into yourself and you hadn't told anyone, you know, did you tell anyone? And how did you deal with the outside world knowing that there was such turmoil at home? Yeah, well, I didn't really tell anyone. Um, at about that time, I begin. I began to tell my auntie Sharon. Um, my family knew at the time. They got wind of what was happening. My grandfather lost his marbles a bit. Was going to go and, you know, the typical West Indian yeah. thing. He was going to get the machete and go and chop up yeah. my step my stepfather. Um, but no, it never really um, transpired. And I never told anyone. Um, I knew I, later on in in life. I discovered that. Um, the church that my biological mother went to, people there knew about it. How did they, how did they, you think they knew? Because apparently, um, she when the beatings got really bad and there was a, you know I was marked quite bad, I was scarred. Um, she was apparently mentioned to the pastor of the church that she was worried about the abuse that I was getting. Um, but even then, wow. no Nothing one did happened. anything about it. So that for me, finding including it, her, yeah, exactly. So that for me, finding out finding that out later on was difficult. But what was difficult for me is that I never told anyone. Um, I literally suppressed all these feelings, all this anger. Literally, athletics was my escape, but it just affected my whole life because mm. I became angry, I became mm. bitter. Um, I, when you say affected your life, what you, you mean were you, I don't know, a bully or what? How, how, in what way did that play out towards friends or family or girlfriends or? Um, it became it, it affected my life because um, I was just angry at everybody. I put all these walls up. Um, I wouldn't let anybody in. I literally did become a bully. Um, I used to carry, and it's, it's difficult in the current mm. climate, but I used to carry a knife. Yep thinking that if anyone hurt me, I was going to hurt them first. Mm. Um, and I literally just became this um, this really weird person because in private, I was this young boy who was crying out for love and crying out for affection that I didn't get from my biological mother. But in when I was out in, with friends or out in the public eye in terms of when I was running, I just became this... This different, but had an alter ego. I was quite mm -hmm. arrogant. I was quite self-centered. 
Um, so my whole, you know, my whole persona had changed. My, all my emotions were all over the place. And I just, I, I didn't have, really have an identity. I didn't know who I was. And I had a real identity crisis. When did you start to come to terms with your childhood or start to be able to process it? Because talking about it now, I can see it's clearly emotional for you. Mm. But in order to write a book, at some point we have to start to make sense of it and start to pull it apart. If I'm honest, um, it took me too many years because um, I hadn't dealt with it. I hadn't spoken about it. And one one thing I realised that um, there were so many things that were happening over and over again. There was a lot of repetitive behaviour. Um, I wasn't I wasn't the best boyfriend when I was younger. Mm. <laughs> um, I wasn't the easiest person to be around. Um, at times I was a nightmare. And I also saw a lot of people as the enemy mm. um, as well. So it wasn't until probably... There was one incident I remember. I was in a church and I was actually leading the singing at the time and I thought I was over it because you know all these years have gone past and I thought Mm. I was good and I remember um my stepfather walked into the church (gasps) and I remember it all came flooding back what happened um literally well it should have been a drop the mic moment I should have dropped the mic and run down and done whatever I wanted to do but I couldn't because I'm in the middle of this church service and I'm like, I can't just drop the mic and do whatever. I've got to carry on and act like everything's okay. But inside, emotionally, I was in turmoil and it all came flooding back. And it made me realise that I hadn't forgotten it. Mm. I hadn't forgiven him. But I got to the point where it's like, I I realised that I had to forgive him. And that was probably one of the hardest things I had wow. to do. How did you... By understanding him or how? Um, how do you do that? Because... I did that by... One thing I, one thing I developed very, very... Uh, from a young age was learning to read people and learning to read people's emotions. And I'd studied my biological mother. I'd studied him. I'd studied my family. I'd studied a lot of things around me. And one of the things I realised is that I was... In terms of my emotions, I was becoming like my biological mother mm-hmm. because um, when I was conceived, she was 15, my, my biological father was 16 and because he broke her heart, he was her first love um, and I was literally, we're, we're twins, I'm the spitting image of him. So when ah, you said that, and I, see. I was laughing when you said that. Because, because uh, well, I was a similar situation. I My dad, my stepdad, I, I remember mm. saying to him and he... We're now reconciled, but mm. I went through being beaten. And I mm. remember saying to him, oh, yeah, I'm just like mum. He said, he said to me, you're nothing like your mother. You look nothing like your mother. Mm. You must look like him. That's why I said it. When you remind them yeah. of what was before. Yeah. Yeah, then- you're right. And and I was told on numerous occasions, um, you look like you look like your father. And one of the reasons why I, I believe that she was so horrible to me mm. is because she couldn't get out of her head that my biological mm. father broke yeah. her heart mm. and she wasn't with him. And she'd held on to that bitterness and unforgiveness and thing mm. for years. And I yeah. said to myself, I cannot be like that because I'd realised at that point when I saw him, mm. um, and I was like nearly 30 years old. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And I, I thought to myself, I'm still hanging on to this. And I said to myself, I can't keep doing this. But I even struggled after years after that because I still didn't get the help that I needed to. Mm. So literally, and this is the honest truth, 
probably about three years ago, mm. three, four years ago, it got to a point where there's so many cycles that happened in my life. Um, some of them were my fault. Some of them were things done to me. And so many things happened in my life that I did not like. I got to the point and I said, you know what? Um, I can't, I can no longer blame my biological mother or my mm -hmm. stepfather. I have to take responsibility for a lot of the things that I did and thought and, and saw. So I said, I have to do this for myself. Is that when you, when did you have your son? Well, my son Phoenix is seven. And, yeah. and even when he was born and when he literally came out of the womb and he was naked lying on the bed and I, and I held his, he held my finger. And I even said to him, I said, Phoenix, you are not going to go through what I've gone through. And even though I, it was, things were still difficult, I made, I made him a promise and I said to myself, this has to stop with me. Mm. There's no way I'm going to have him looking at me and being scared and thinking, yeah. oh gosh, daddy's mm. home, I can't do this, I can't do that. So, you know... So did you go and seek help did you go to therapy or counseling or how did you go about it yeah i i i, I went to counseling and i found well a, a, a friend found it but I've, i i found this wonderful counselor in maidstone and it was difficult at first because i thought i'm gonna have to confront a lot of things here mm. but i i can honestly say it's the best thing i've ever did mm. and i wish i'd done it years ago and and the reason why I'm such an advocate for counselling and why I've documented it in my book is because I know so many yeah. people, especially men, yeah. <laughs> who um, they think it's not a match-up. They think they, they're less of a man to admit they, they've gone to counselling. Mm. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've sat there and I've literally, she literally stripped me bare. Yeah. And mm. took me back to my childhood and yeah. <laughs> has really, really helped me. Do you think there are many more... Um, stories like yours and men that haven't come to terms with it because so, I'm thinking about the time that it was and mm -hmm. specifically in West Indian Caribbean families that level of beatings as we call them mm. was kind of standard <laughs> and, and then there, there, there's standard and then uh, what you mm. what you're explaining to me if there were bruises and the house is turned upside down a whole extreme but it was almost normal and so I'm wondering do you, do you think this is a, an unspoken thing that actually lots of men haven't spoken about? Well, without doubt, mm. because... Listen, and women, I'd add to that. Yeah, yeah and yeah, women, I mean, because I, I grew up in a house where with lots of uncles and aunties, mm. and I saw them getting beating as well. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it, in West Indian homes and African homes, that kind of discipline was seen as the norm. Mm -hmm. And you didn't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I saw other kids at school getting beaten like that. And I, and I thought, you know, this is just not right. And I know of so many men who have suffered. Mm. I'd, I'd never hit my children because of what I, I, I went through. I, I, because it, it's... And it's interesting you said you became good at reading people. Mm. Reading people was your survival to know mm. when the next time, you know... You, if you're going to cry, I'm going to give you something to cry yeah, for. Yeah. I mean, we, we all know the yeah, phrase. And, and, and then they beat you and they say, what are you crying what for? What are you crying for? <laughs> yeah. I'll really give you something to cry yeah. for and all of those yeah. things. But you read people in order to keep yourself safe. What I'm interested in, all the anger you talked about, and mm. I can understand that anger, and mm. from many people, that anger and that wanting to escape spurs you on. Mm. I've, it helped, not help my career, but mm. <laughs> it helped me run. Mm. Literally... 
with running, did it help you run? Mm -hmm. And did was getting rid of... Some guys might think, if I get rid of that anger through therapy or whatever, mm. will I have the same aggression to compete and to be as successful? Mm. That's a great point. Um, <laughs> I, I would say it helped me 100% because... Um, in my career, I wasn't the most talented person out there. There were so many people that were more talented than me. I, I'm only small, so that was a disadvantage. But I had an incredible work ethic and I literally used that anger to drive me on. Anything I could use that could make me angry. So when I got on the start line, I mean, people saw me as arrogant. People saw me yeah. as this person that was, gosh, he's not a, a, you know, he's not a marketable person because look how angry he is. But when I literally got on the start line, I would have, I could have literally walked on, walked on water. I could have walked on flames. <laughs> I would have done anything because mm. I got to a point where mm -hmm. I was, I yeah, had rocket to. Rocket fuel. Yeah, I wound myself yeah. up so much. Yeah. And that's, that's half of what made me the athlete that I was because I used that to my advantage. How did that then play when in 1992 mm. you got sent home for drugs? What did, what did that do to the anger? To be honest, it made it worse. Yeah. Um, because for the first time in my life, I had something that was mine. I had something that wasn't going to hurt me. I had something that was mine. And, uh, gosh, I'm good at something. And I'd literally devoted my whole life to athletics. It was like, I mean, I'm the kind of person, if I'm focused on something, I'm yeah. doing it to the best of my ability. And I'd worked so hard. And to have that taken away in the way that it was was difficult because... When you, when you say in the way, what do you mean? Because it was... I mean, had you crossed... Did you knowingly cross a line or subconsciously cross a line or totally ignorantly cross no, a line? I think I ignorantly crossed the line because it, I know a lot of sprinters who um, they... We, I don't know, they take things that they think are going to give them an edge. Yeah. Like, I know I know athletes that 10 minutes before a race took two aspirin, drunk yeah. a couple of Red Bull and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But literally, we all took supplements. Mm -hmm. And we all took supplements that um, gave us an edge and how far can I push the boundaries? Mm. And, I, and I did that. I did yeah. it. We knew, um, we knew what was right, what was wrong, and I pushed the boundaries as far as I could. And if, I, if I'm honest, I document in my book. Um, there was one incident uh, in, the, in the May of 92 where I caught the flu, I was quite ill, and literally I was in bed for like two weeks. And I said to a friend, you know, I, I need to pick me up, get me something that's going to help me, some vitamins. And he came back, um, apparently there were vitamin B12 and inosine and all these things, and I remember taking these injections... And literally after about one or two days, felt like Superman. And you never questioned what Never was it? questioned it. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of ignorance mm. there. <laughs> and when I look back, I think to myself, Jason, man, what on earth were you doing? Mm. Come on. So I would say, yeah, definitely. I, I ignorantly pushed the boundaries. Um, but not once did I set out to say, well, I'm going to go and set out to go and cheat. Yeah. No. Mm. We're going to keep talking to Jason here on Badass Women's Hour XL. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Jason, we've talked lots about your childhood and the influence it had on your career um, and how you've overcome it. But where are you now, do you think? Having written the book, how looking at it now, how do you feel about it? Um, I feel really good about it, to be honest. Mm. Um, it's funny, um, when I was writing the book, it was so therapeutic. Um, it did bring back a lot of memories, but not like they used to, yeah. um, where they brought me to tears or they brought, you know, they, it literally brought me back into my bedroom. And it's funny because I remember when I was actually writing about the first place where I lived with my biological mother, my stepfather, on the same, like, literally week I was writing about it, I was actually driving past the same road in Walthamstow. Um, and I remember getting out the car, going and standing outside the house and looking at it and thinking, you don't own me anymore. Because mm-hmm. um, I got over it. And there was two other occasions that that happened. But where I'm now, I'm in a fantastic place. And it's really, really weird because the counselling has been phenomenal for me. Mm. Um, it's been life-changing for me. And I'm glad that I've done it. Um, I'm in a good place because... I said to someone the other day, and someone found this really weird, I said to someone, I looked in the mirror recently and liked what I saw. Mm-hmm. And someone found that strange and said, what, you're 48 years old and you're saying that? And I said, yeah, because I realised that for years I looked in the mirror and didn't like what I saw. Yeah. I didn't like what was um, the reflection and I didn't like the way I was acting. I didn't like um, the way my life was going and the way people were treating me and the way I allowed myself to be treated. And I've just had a total extreme makeover Mm. in terms of the way I think about myself, the way I think about life, what I intend to do. And I'm just absolutely driven now to, like, help as many people as I can and to make every day of my life count. Can I ask you, it's it's your biological mother and your stepfather, are they still alive? No, yeah, they're still alive, but they're they're not together. How are they? They're not together. But how are they? Because there's always that, well, I don't know, fear, concern, worry, even not even legal things about, I'm going to write about this, I'm going to put this out there and mm. people go, are going to know who they are mm. and especially coming back to communities mm. and you said a church. Mm. Were you worried? Were you concerned? Did you alert them that you were going to write the book or did you just think, no, this is my story and they'll have to deal with their own No, story? I didn't alert anybody because um, 
in terms of, if you know anything about church, you know, it's quite a small circle. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows everybody. So a lot of people who know my story knew this happened and I never alerted anybody. And I didn't feel the need to alert anybody because I just said, there's something I have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's going to be repercussions um, and I'm prepared for that. Were there? Um, Not not yet. I'm sure there will be. But um, I, I had to do this. I, um, I had to do this because this is not just for me. And many, many years ago, uh, I knew that my life had a purpose and I realised that everything I'd gone through mm. was for a reason. Mm. Um, because I'm now encountering people, well, not just now, but even years previously, encountered people that have gone through the same thing yeah. I have gone through. And you, who, put, you put a voice to it. Exactly. And who better mm. to tell them how to get over something than someone who's been through it? When you were writing it, did you ever question if what you were writing was true? It's just within within abuse, we hear stories of um, mm. people wondering: it, it, did, is, Could is it that really real? That? Yeah, yeah, was you, it really that? Go. Was it really that yeah. bad? And over time, where memories fade, mm. did you ever think, oh, what 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 if this isn't true, or isn't real, or is it so real for you that it's your truth? Yeah, no, it's, no, that's a good, that's a great point. But it was so real because. Um, I only people who know me know that I don't say anything unless I I mean it and I own it and I've been through it. Mm. And it, actually, when I was r- writing the story, and my counselor even said to me, she said to me, "How are you? How are you still normal?" Mm. Because the, I, it, mm. it, the gravity of what I've actually been through actually hit me. I thought I actually went through all of that. When somebody else says it to you, often that can be the triggering moment because yeah. you think it's. There still becomes a normality about it, surely, for you. But mm. then if somebody else says, oh, my God, you went through that, did it make you think... <gasps> oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because my counsellor said to me, she said, I've seen a lot of things and I heard a lot of things. And she said, I don't know how you're still normal, um, having been through what you've been through. So, yeah, well, <laughs> I know it's real. I know it's we real. We know you're normal and mm. we have loved talking to you, Jason. Thank yeah. you so much. Jason Livingston, Born Rang is out now. It's out on December the 9th. On December the 9th. Yeah. Good, just amazing Christmas present. I just, can't wait for it. Thank yeah. you so Thank much you for much. joining Thank us. Thank you so much. One, two, three, four. This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and MS Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR, um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love. Five stars should do it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.